Happy Monday and happy MLK Day too. How's it going, everybody? Hello, hello. Happy Monday. Happy, happy. Um, Matt, how are you? I'm I'm good. One yeah, we're... the door real quick and let my dog yeah, yeah, out. Sorry, the dog is very <laughs> cute. She's causing problems. My dog knows how to open doors. Um, so she uh okay, sorry. <laughs> so what's your dog's name? Uh, her name is Lana. Oh, Lana. Okay. Yeah, yeah she's pretty cute. Actually, leave it open because she'll open the door and it'll get very right, loud. Okay. Cool. Sorry about that. Right. <laughs> so um, live, live and uncut here. Uh, yes, of course. <laughs> well, uh, good morning, Kate. Good to see you. Um, for people who don't know who you are, do you want to give a quick intro? Yeah, sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Kate Stashne, founder of Dedicated, and I help other companies, other data analytics, AI, machine learning companies reach their audience on LinkedIn. I host a community called Dedicated Circle. I have courses on LinkedIn learning. I write books. I have kids. I like to run. And um, yeah, that's about it. What's going on? <laughs> You're very bored all the time. Apparently. I know, bored all the time. Too much yeah. free time, really. <laughs> Yeah, I think when we first met years ago, I was like, "How does she do all this stuff?" There's, there's a, there's a lot, um, and and now you've uh, managed to add more, um, you know, to your plate. I mean, you uh, wrote a book, which we'll talk about. Um, you know, you have, um, you know, just it's, it's, it's not shrinking the the amount that no. Kate does. It's, it's uh, <laughs> You know, it's funny because other people have asked me like, oh, my God, Kate, how do you do it all? But for me, it doesn't feel like much at all. It feels like I'm just having fun. So it's like, you know, people eat junk food and watch Netflix and no one goes up to them and say, oh, my God, man, how do you do it all? Like, how do you how do you sit there all day? Like, for me, that is literally as fun as doing the, the other stuff. Like, I don't really watch much television. I, I think there's mm -hmm. nothing on there that really catches my attention that much. I much rather just like go and um, check out somebody's live show, like the Monday data chat or whatever. <laughs> and it's more entertaining for me. I don't know. So those things don't really take up as much time as you think also, even like writing a book or anything else. It, hmm. You can be very efficient at doing those things. We should talk about your book writing experience because, of course, Joe and I went through this over the last, what, year and a half, basically, until about July when we published our book. And it was it was pretty intense. Um, it was very rewarding at the same time, but uh, probably aged us each a couple of years more than we would have aged otherwise. <laughs> See, you guys had a very technical book. Mm -hmm. I think the two books are not the same, right? It's more like building building a shack and building a building, right? I think my book is more like a shack. It's very It's very light. It's very... It's also like fun. I mean, I'm talking about color, right? How how hard can color be? We're starting with basics of like, what is color? And it's it's sort of a fun approach. And it's something I'm super passionate about. And also didn't take me much time to to write. So I, I don't think I had that same struggle of, oh, no, I have to write 10 more pages. Like it was, mm. it was more like, oh, should I add a chapter on this? And oh, yeah, I should do it and add so many cool images. So it was a, it was a fun process. I think the hardest part was when you're at the end and you're working with the publisher and you're sort of like you think you're done but they don't think you're done that was where i'm like okay i have to really get through this and address the 52 comments that came in to really make sure that this book is the best that it can be yeah yeah it was actually one of your reviewers so uh, and I, re I read the entire book on a flight back from uh new york um yeah. and that was it was good the um it, it for me, because I, I, I gotta you know, kick myself for this. I've done a lot of visualizations in my career. Um, uh, but one thing I've always sucked at is color for whatever reason. I, I just, you know, I'll put, you know, just brown with bright, you know, whatever colors. It just looks absolutely miserable. That's why you stick with basic black, basically. You That's can't why go I stick to tables, yeah, actually. Like, okay. I don't, okay. I don't, I don't <laughs> do charts. <laughs> so. <laughs> that's funny uh, yeah i yeah, think i learned a lot from that uh mainly that i i need to pay attention to this stuff because it's just that's it's most like, of I, the feedback i've gotten from from readers so far is like i never really thought about it that much before like the the proper use of color because a lot of times they either use the default settings of whatever their programming or software dataviz tool provides and they're like okay this must be good enough and it's sort of like a last second throw on color to make it more appealing or catchy or attention grabbing but what the book is mainly about is just making sure you're intentional with actually how do you pick colors and mm. if, you know if you if you win in doubt maybe don't use color unless you really need to mm. yeah. that's a good point 
It's a, it's a really important communication tool. The, the other thing I would say is that according to Bill Inman, you did it right. Like it's actually much better. You were saying he's written over 60 books and he said it's much better to write short books than long books. Like to, to yeah, kind of I remember I went topic. to his house with my book and he yelled at me. He's like, don't ever write a book this big again. And I'm like, fine. <laughs> it's good to see you too. Um, good morning. Um, but no, it's, it's a good book. And it, you know, the, the things I also notice is, you know, I'm, I'd like your take on this so that there's, Sometimes when you make visualizations, especially for clients, like, it, it, you know, you want it to be in like the company's colors, yeah, <laughs> uh, which sometimes weren't really well thought through to begin with uh, yeah. from a visualization perspective. Um, and then when you try and combine them on a chart, it just uh, looks looks a bit odd. Um, how, how would you approach that problem? Yeah, I actually have had to approach this problem uh, before I even thought about writing this book. And I was I was on, on another podcast recently, the Super Data Science podcast, where I was talking about how I fell in love with and got passionate about telling people how to use color is uh, in one of my first DataViz projects, I had to create this very custom chart. It was like this, you take a, a quiz, like a 20 question quiz, and then it plots your personality type for, for this specific corporation. And it tells you you're either, you know, personality A, B or C or D. It's like a four quadrant thing. And it plots you on the scatter plot. So that was my first thing. I had to create this in Tableau. And I used the colors of the, those four characteristics, those four personalities that everyone was familiar with, like A was green and B was blue or whatever. And then my manager at the time is like, no, no, no. Okay. We got to use brand colors, use the brand colors. So I'm like, okay, I go back, I change everything. I use the brand colors. We present it to the management team and the management team is like, no, 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 you got to use the original colors. And I'm like, oh my God, I wanted to, but like, you're sitting there. You can't just throw your manager under the bus and say, I told you. Right. So I'm like, see, color is important because it makes it more like, especially if it's intuitive, people know that green means a use green for a like it's it should be obvious. But I realized it wasn't that obvious for most people. So going back to the brand colors, there is a time and place, depending on how good your brand colors are, like if they're neon green and hot pink, it's probably not great to use them in all your data visualizations because it's, you know, it's just not as visually appealing and telling a story, especially if you want to remain professional. So I think you have to do it carefully. There will be times when companies sort of force you into it. And in those cases, uh, let's say you have three different colors, you can use maybe one of those colors in your data visualizations and then substitute the other two for like a more pastel or muted grayish sort of colors where you're not just using brand colors for the sake of using them, but you can make it a bit more cohesive by let's say just using the blue, the same blue that they're using in their brand colors and ignoring the the others. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a fine line because you want to appeal to the vanity of the, uh, the, the the company, but at the same time, it's... I know. <laughs> as a chart, it might uh, might have the opposite effect. So actually, uh, uh, Ravit, here's a bunch of questions here. Um, uh, Ravit, hello. What's up, man? Um, uh, Yes. How much research did you um, you did on colors before coming up with this idea? Um, also, hats off. Takes so much to understand right colors. Yeah. So I actually did a bunch of research. I, I ordered a lot of books, starting with like a kid's what is color book to just you know get up to speed because I know what good looks like, but I had a hard time explaining to other people like why this matters, why this doesn't matter, or why you should use colors that are sort of on opposite spectrums of the color wheel, and sometimes you have to use those close to each other. So I had to learn a bunch myself. And in writing the book, I actually did it very publicly where I would share the outline with my uh, community on LinkedIn. And then people would weigh in and say, oh, I think you should also include this and make sure you don't miss like accessibility and which I was going to include, but it, it made me understand how important some sections were where I ended up spending more time. So yes, lots of research, lots of um, sharing it with friends and seeing what they say and taking some very hard criticism from people. Um, and I'm so thankful for it. Honestly, the, the people who told me, Kate, this looks great. I appreciate you. But the people who told me, Kate, don't do this. This sucks and change this and kill this whole chapter. Things like that were so helpful because although I was annoyed at the time and sort of like wanted to say, hey, you try writing a book, right? You don't know what it's like <laughs> and got defensive. Then like you take a few days and now, especially now that the book is out there, I'm so glad that I took the time and incorporated all of that feedback to just try to make the book better than it 
that better than it would have been. Yeah. And it's really a tough balancing act, right? But you absolutely need that feedback. <laughs> and sometimes you make an editorial decision and say, I see what you're saying, but I kind of have a different vision. But quite often you're like, oh yeah, you're right. I need to think about how to do this a bit differently. So it's a better book. Yeah. yeah you can't yeah, say you... yes to everything, obviously. No, no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I just, uh, Ole had a quick question. What's up, Ole? Um, he asks, uh, do you have a chapter for color blind people? He's red and green and it's killing him in d data discussions. Actually, I'll just hold up a chapter here. So it's chapter seven. Seven, yeah. I'm like, was it six or seven? Yes. Accessibility yes. and addressing color blindness. So yes, you're, uh, it does cover this. And so and I think there's a really good chapter here, um, especially when, because it's one of the things I, I don't really realize, you know, when I think there's color and there's how the other people might see it. And it's, um, uh, yeah, it's just one of these things where you're just like, well, you can't see that. Like, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> but there, some people can't. It is what it is. So yeah, you know, there's um, especially uh, men. There's a, a percentage of men that have trouble seeing the differences between green and red, and it's kind of shocking because, well, street lights, green and red, stock markets, green and red. Like green and red is so commonly used for the ups and downs in the world, and. I've taken it upon myself to, to challenge people to use blue and orange, like Matt's jacket and my shirt. Those mm. two? Oh, wait, can you see the difference between our... <laughs> it should it should be a good a good, uh, good difference. Um, yeah, for some reason, those red and green start to blend together into this really yucky, greenish, brownish looking color. Yeah. Do, you, do you try to use positional cues as well? Obviously, that's how stoplights work, of course. They yeah. position the spots so you know what they are, even if you can't see the color. Yeah, you can use that. You can use annotations, call outs. You can also use patterns. So for example, if you've got a line graph and one, if you really insist on using green for one line and red for another, you can you can have one as a solid line and the other one as a dotted or a dashed line, which not only for those who are colorblind, like it makes it easier for everybody to see the differences between the lines. Mm. I often wonder about the the, uh, the climbing gym with the routes. It, that like actually is a big problem. Yeah. Yeah, one one of our mutual friends is colorblind and he has trouble with that all the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I have yeah. enough trouble because sometimes the holds will be like pink and they'll have like a red hold right Well, and they're coated with and chalk like, and you're just like, yeah, I can't, I can't so see what's like, going so on. I'm not cheating. Yeah, yeah. I'm not climbing, but it's... Uh, um, I haven't even thought about that. You're right. With the rock climbing where you're trying to... Okay. Well, yeah, because all the nowadays all the uh, the routes yeah, the are all set stickers, with the same color holds. And so I've noticed, I mean, I have enough, like I said, I have enough trouble figuring this out on a good day and I can see, uh, you know, every color in theory. So it's like, I don't know, it's, but yeah, for colorblind people, it's going to yeah. be real challenging. So it's not just yeah. visualizations. Actually, um, kind of bring it back here. Rabbit had a, a good question, which I think we can all talk about. Um, what's the biggest challenge when you start writing a book? Um, I think for me, it was deciding on what I want to write about. I think it's not a matter of if I'll, you know, write more books or I, I've written books before, self-published. And I think this is like my first real book. And I, it was the matter of deciding the topic that I want to spend so much quality time with. Because you're, you're on that topic for a very long time where you're just knee deep. So I think the most challenging thing for me was picking something that I care enough about to tell the world. Um, and for me, that was that was color. I'd love to hear what your biggest challenge was, because you guys wrote a book together. I think for me, that's a challenge in itself. I think that was one of the big challenges, honestly. It was. I mean, yeah. it also worked out really well. But yeah, we had our disagreements about how things were going sometimes. But I think we had a working relationship such that the book ended up much better with both of us than it would have with either one of yeah, us. Yeah, I mean, you want to talk about criticisms, for example, right? Like, I, I can be pretty harsh. I think Matt can be pretty harsh in his own way. Um, you know, it's just, I think there's a, a level of, of acceptance that you have to have with what's, what's going to, you know, what, what hits the standard and what doesn't, um, you know, so starting to write when the, the biggest challenge, when you start writing a book, I would say is understanding what, obviously what you want to write about. That's, that's key. But I think also understanding, is this something that you really want to invest that amount of time and energy into, right? I mean, you're going to leave a lot behind um you know and you're gonna lose a part of yourself in the process and gain a, a part of your you know, a new part of yourself and um it's a lot of work I, I would say it's uh so that's the big thing i just i think you should understand if this is something you really want to commit yourself to you know because you don't want to be like three quarters of the way done and that's when it gets hard well, you know that the three quarter you're almost, like, you're almost done and you're tired right yeah. so you run you run races you know how it is it's like yeah. mile 20 in a marathon it's like not not the best place <laughs> so but you're almost done and that's the problem you, you can't done. give up now right you can't so give up to. well 
the hard part they they often say that a lot of great movies are made in the edit right it's not about yes the directing is important the acting is important but it's about finding the right takes and cutting the right stuff and keeping the right stuff in and the same is true of writing books like you write the whole thing and then the editing is really really tough if you want it to be good anyway and your copy editors will tear you apart <laughs> like and then you have to go back and try to fix things and get your vision to come through in the pros but still make a good pros that part is really tough yeah i think the other thing too is just be willing to kill your ideas quick like you might think you have a good idea starting out but it's it, it, a lot of it's like science right like like science experiments you, you know you have a hypothesis and you just gotta you know test it out and, and that's what the early review is for right like you're gonna get some harsh criticism back i mean we you know we got pummeled numerous times but i would say that's what you want like the last point yeah. you wanted is like at the end at the end when it's out in public right like that's that's gonna be the harder thing to deal with um you know so i, I intentionally said it was you know i treat it like a, like getting ready for a boxing match like you want sparring partners that are just going to beat the crap out of you because you you know the, the real world is going to be a lot harder on you as we we're talking before it's like it doesn't seem to matter like you, there's always you always got to reserve at least five percent maybe more for people who are just going to hate your book no matter yes. what like you can't make everyone happy that's that's very true yeah and i faced that very early on when i was just sharing the idea that i wanted to write this book and i had people come to me saying don't do it no one's going to read it no one's going to care there, it's just color, right? Color is not that important. And the message was, why don't you write a data visualization book, like visual best practices and have color be a chapter. And it was very hard for me to just keep convincing myself, like, no, I, I still think, like I went back and forth so many times, like maybe they're right, uh, maybe they're wrong because there was not a book on color for data visualization. And there could have been two reasons. One was no one just wanted to do it yet. Or two was maybe everyone else who was telling me not to do it was right. And people wouldn't care. And so far, I mean, I'm getting really good feedback from not only friends in the data community, but people who I've not like met or interacted with before saying that this is valuable. So I'm so happy I went forward with it, but it is difficult to sort of keep those voices out when you're trying to uh, write a book that maybe not everyone like thought would be a good addition to. Yeah to the world you got to tune out the world it's, <laughs> it's a hard but you got to listen to it too right like you got to know that balance it's the balance and that's the hard part because you don't want to be like a crazy person like no i'm gonna write about like pikachu drinking water like no and people are like no no one's gonna care about pikachu drinking water and you're like no i'm gonna do it anyways like you don't want to be too crazy so i was trying to do a bit of market research and trying to see um if there's a need and that's why i was so excited when o'reilly decided to to work with me on this it made it more real in my head i'm like okay if a publisher thinks there's a need then maybe there is a need so it right was a good push yeah because i remember i remember we were talking about that was, yes like, is we this were. gonna go is this not gonna go and i'm like I, I don't know i mean the publisher's a publisher and at one point i was like why don't you just sell publish this and just see where it goes you know but um you know having the backing of a company like o'reilly i think is good especially for your first book it's a good it's a good validation of i'd say your idea and also you as an author that you know they're willing to take a bet on you and uh I mean, they don't, they don't accept anybody. Uh, right. Pretty hard to get in. So yeah, there are some publishers that are a lot more relaxed um, yeah. than others. Yeah, exactly. They have a great platform and they only publish so many <laughs> books a year. And so, yeah, it's really yeah. a privilege to get into that group. Yeah. I guess kind of following up with some of the questions uh, Ravi has, um, uh, how much can chat GPT help you with book writing? It's, it's like, I was actually writing about this today, uh, this morning in my journal. Yes, I actually, I sent myself an email to write a book about chat GPT because I was in Barnes and Noble yesterday and I'm like, we don't see any books on this yet. Maybe, maybe I should add a book on that, but, and have chat GPT write it, right? I Either think it can yeah. help you in, in many ways. I think asking for a book outline. Um, I, I wish it was around before I was writing a book. Like I did, maybe it was around, I just wasn't aware of it. And I maybe it wasn't as good as it is now, but asking for a really in-depth outline just to see if there's anything you're missing in the book that you might want to consider. I think that's a good, good way to use it. And also for getting case studies or examples for ideas in your book. I think it's really good at being creative. Like for example, you have an airline company and, you know, something else happens. And it's good at getting you just creative ideas. Um, I wouldn't have it write the whole book, obviously, because I'm assuming there are some copyright issues with that. But it, you can use it as a little, like, a assistant that helps get ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I thought, I think it depends on the type of book you're writing. Like, I, I've had this, like, crazy idea of actually, like... <laughs> 
having a, a pen name and writing a bunch of like really trashy uh, romance novels because I was looking at what sells on yeah. Amazon and Kindle it. <laughs> and it's like, I, you know, wait, they're, I don't they're... think ChatGPT is going to get trashy though. <laughs> That's where that's where the human comes in. So um, <laughs> now you, you just need your own model, like it's an iteration where. You're no, but I was like, if I wanted to make a bunch of money, yeah. I, I and just write. I would complete, not have made that like, guess, Joe. Complete <laughs> crap. It'd be like I would do something like that and just like, just you know, carpet bomb Kindle Direct Publishing, which is these GPT um, penned uh, novels. But yeah, it was an idea. And I was like, for books like that, I would I would just be like, absolutely, like, whatever. It, it's it's. It's trash, so you don't need to really put a lot of thought into it. Um, well, but yes, you yeah. know, I, I had this conversation with someone about children's books, like the idea to flood the gates with uh, data story, data stories for children. Like they go on an adventure and they find some data and they organize the data, like teaching them data concepts for children. But and it's so easy to create these days, right? Because you you can have AI helping you with a lot of the process, even art and all that great stuff. But the, the, it comes down to selling, right? So you have the reason you're selling your book, right? You could have written this book and no one knew about you. Would it sell the same way? I don't know. Because That's I think that on Amazon, though, it's too. like it's, it's your, you're adding fuel to the fire by just being two people that people know are good at, you know, data engineering and you know what you're talking about. And I think that helps so much in terms of actually selling. Whereas the romance thing, I mean, you know, try it, but. <laughs> I would try it just for fun because I see some of these titles. It's, it's this whole genre of like billionaire romance novels, like just, you know, some fascination, like yeah. you know, hooking up with your boss and this kind of stuff. And it's just, because I, I, I was looking at what's, what's popular on Amazon and inevitably it comes back to these, just these types of books. I'm like, who's this for? Um, and like, yeah, people, why am I not stuff. writing these things? Like they have like 20,000 reviews. Um, oh yeah. I mean, it ranks like 500 on Amazon. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm saying like I'm the dumb one here, not them. <laughs> so, but I'm not. Gonna All right, you name. should do it. You should do it. Well, tell us what your name is going to be so we can know. Uh, in due time, I'll chat GB3 come up with a name too. Um, it's actually it's actually interesting that you talk about the kids um, books though, because it was I was writing about this this morning, sort of the impacts of um, you know generative AI on on creativity and um, you know and. and that's, you know, I, I thought about it from the perspective of adults, right? Like, oh, you know, what what are adults going to do as, you know, more what, what's what sparked it was an article I saw a sort of clickbaity title, like 90% of content online will be generated by AI in 2025. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. I don't know. Um, but then I, I thought, okay, so, you know, adults, I mean, there's a lot of resources to teach you data literacy. And, and I would say, um, you know, anything you want to learn, you can learn. And, and yeah. at this point, it's like, you know, I, I think in most cases, adults are kind of a lost cause for a lot of this stuff. But but for kids, though, right, they, they, you got to understand, like, I was thinking about, okay, so the education system um, is super slow to adapt to any sort of changes, let alone this, this you know, a phase shift, as is, is Matt and I will sometimes call it, of like, um, you know, just thinking and, uh, you know, critical thinking and, and, uh, and these kinds of things. And I'm like, okay, so what was it? I read a New York Times article about, you know, how chat GBT should be considered a, a equivalent of like a hand calculator, you know, like this. But when I put numbers into this, it gives exact answers every single time, right? The, right. Yeah. the output of chat GPT and these other uh, models are very stochastic. They're, they're and random. it can go way out of bounds too. Oh right? yeah, it could be completely random. wrong too. I Right. But if you don't know this and you're just, if you're a student and you're just you're coming up with these essays, for example, like how would you ever know the difference? Like, Well, it's similar to a student using Google, right? They can stumble similar. upon an article that's also not accurate. Well, I remember in, yeah. in university when when Google had come out, because everyone's like, you got to try the search engine. It's way better than AltaVista. Um, and so, you know, Google was like the cool thing. And um, yeah, but, you know, it's, it's I think it's just. So how are we going to teach critical thinking when um, oh, you know, yeah. all the thinking could be done for you? That was a question. I was... I, when I showed it to my husband, because yeah. like he, did, he didn't know about it like two weeks ago. And I'm like, here, look what you can do. Like he's in data analytics too, but he's, he's got a slightly different role. And I'm like just showing him things like, look, you can do recipes. I'm just showcasing all the, you know, all the things that can write jokes. And he's like, so people are just not going to think ever again. I'm like, yeah, I know. That's true. That's like, true. Oh. But, you know, bringing it back to content creation, I mean, what does this mean for, uh, you know, content creators? Uh, I'm not worried at all. Honestly, I'm using it to support my content creation. And a lot of people are posting that they're like scared that, oh, everyone's going to be creating so much content now because it's easier. Okay. And it's it's sort of like, 
people know what to do to succeed in life. Like, you know, you have to do push-ups and run to get like stronger and fit and eat healthy. That doesn't mean people are going to do it. Like, yeah, you can use ChatGPT to create articles on different topics and put them out there. But I think people are generally going to like, they might do it for a bit and then they're just going to give up because people are just lazy and like myself included, everyone sort of just like goes back to their own routine and whatever they're used to doing. They might try it out. So I'm, I'm really not worried about any influx of more content creators coming in or um, leveraging this to, to create their own content. I think it should be used as an assistant, like the way we use Google to help find something. I don't think library well maybe libraries were like oh no they're not going to use us anymore because we're books and it it might be true and it, we don't have to keep doing things the slow way if we have this new tool that helps us do it faster as long as it's accurate like you said earlier because yeah. that's yeah big. it's like you have to cross check the results right you can yeah. have it pull a result and sometimes it's correct and sometimes it's not so just yeah. like google you have to do additional resource uh, research and check source you don't just take the first answer yeah <laughs> well i do i but, do yeah, all the time yeah, i'm yeah. like <laughs> except that one is sponsored right so there that one you're just looking at whatever people so it's got to be good i mean they paid money for it so it's got to be worth something right like yeah. hopefully hopefully <laughs> i think that cost them 20 dollars for me to click that so it must be like a really valuable answer that's gonna might be with my best uh no it, it is interesting too I, I, you know the content creation bit i think is anyone's guess where it goes i think it, it's sort of, I, I, I see kind of two paths really. One, and these are parallel. One is like a race to the bottom in terms of just, um, you know, generative AI content. And like that's, um, but to me, that's really no different than what's going on now with most content. I mean, yeah. if you, if there's, a, there's a level of sameness. You know, I, I saw a really good article last week that talked about how, um, you know, in, in a lot of cases, we've already been, we've already been uh, sort of, um, bringing our content to the level of machines for a while. What do you think SEO is, right? And uh, yeah, that's true. You know, and algorithms. And so it's not like a new thing per se. And it's, it's like just... people are sitting there thinking for six hours and creating one article of original content of like non-obvious content. Everyone's just pulling articles from each other and putting it together right. already. This just makes it easier and more. But that parallel path is what you just described, where it's that, that other thing where somebody's sitting there critically thinking about it for, for hours and writing something that's truly original. I think that's the other path. And, and those sorts of things I think are going to have like the same effect as like sort of, you know, artisanal foods, you know, mm -hmm. and crafts versus, you know, right now it's what, what I think that generative AI is going to do is it's, it's equivalent of like factory farming and, and um, you know, mass manufacturing. That's possible. I mean, I think we've already seen a content bifurcation, right? So on the one hand, a lot of YouTubers have really raised their production values because you don't have to have, you know, a, a half million dollar studio to do this, right? Cameras aren't that expensive. You can buy really nice stuff and have very high production values. Whereas 10 years ago, this was much, much harder. On the other hand, what's been taking over content over the last like three years? Well, TikTok, it's just all throwaway content that you just generate on your phone, super lo-fi, no production values whatsoever, selfie video, basically. Yeah. Yeah. But then he got weirdos like my my twelve year old. He he literally sits around all day and makes video games um, and draws, and that's all he does. And I'm like, I showed him Dolly, and he's like, "This is the dumbest thing I've ever seen." Like, I, why, that takes away the fun of it. Like, why would I want to do that? And so I'm like, "There's hope in the world for sure." Um, you know, and when my uh, my nine year old is sitting out here playing Minecraft, he'll take my phone and uh, like record influencer videos. So he's like, "Yo, my merch drops tomorrow, so be sure and check it out." Oh my <laughs> and films, you know, but it's it's really cool. Like the kids have already caught caught because I, you know, my nine year old, he watches a ton of Mr. Beast all day. It's like when he's oh, okay, interesting. He, he goes to school too. Um, <laughs> all day. <laughs> you no, your kids don't have to go to school anymore. Education I mean, system is broken. Right right what do you mean do that for? Mr. Who needs school? Stuff. I agree. I didn't go to school till I was like nine. So. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. I'm oh. about to write about this. Um, I'm writing my my origin story of coming to America. Um. I was in the middle of it before we joined the before yeah. we started oh, live. Well, maybe uh, are there yeah. any spoiler alerts, or you want to keep this for the article? Oh no, it's fine. I mean, it's just my my story of like coming here from Tajikistan, and I didn't go to school there at all. So now, like, my kids are in first and third grade, and I've never been in those grades. So when they're like, "Oh, I don't know if I know this," I'm like, "No one cares." I'm like, "I didn't even go to school at that age. Like, I didn't know how to read or do math. Like, you'll you guys be don't fine." Need to go to school, kids. <laughs> so I don't. I prioritize school in the sense of like, I want you to do your best, but I really don't care that much about grades or 
like, I, I don't want to do my homework. I'm like, okay, you're the one who has to go to school tomorrow. You're the one who has to tell your teacher you didn't do it. It's not me. Mm-hmm. I don't know why parents are so worried about this. Like, you're not the one going to school. And then when they realize that, they're like, oh, I'll go do my homework. I'm like, yeah. Right. Now, that's good that you put the accountability on the kid. I think, well, a lot of parents, I think, are competitive with each other. It's not so much, Ugh, please. you know, they care about the kids, but it's like, oh, well, what, what school is your kid going to go to? That's true. That's right. true. I guess maybe I'm not surrounded by those types of people yet. Maybe when they're older, it'll be like, well, my kid's going to Harvard and I want my kids to be entrepreneurs. So I'm saying, yeah. And in fact, with, with one of my kids, uh, you know, I, I would be totally stoked if uh, that kid went to a, a trade school and picked up something where I think because there's a huge shortage of, of skills right now when it comes yeah. to like practical things like, I don't know, building something or and yeah. this kid, I mean, he 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 sits out there. He builds all the time. Like he built a new kennel for his dog. He's getting in four months. He just built one over the weekend. Oh, that's and really he, cute. Like, he's just super hands on. And I'm like, this is this is really cool. I mean, um, he'll probably be a building influencer, right? Like he'll make videos about how to build houses. Well, so, so like check this out. So yeah. there's there's these, there's these guys. I think they're in Thailand or somewhere in Southeast Asia, but they they make ponds. Um, oh, I think I've seen them. Is it like super high speed, or they're like making yeah. pools? And, yeah, my kids like to watch them. Right? <laughs> so. Have you seen how many views those videos get? Oh yeah, it's crazy, and it's like the whole. It's satisfying, you know, like just to watch something get formed out of nothing, and this people are just working really hard to do it. And right. yeah, and then they film themselves. It's it's, uh, it's really cool. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, he built a pond in my backyard, and it, it's. Uh, um... <laughs> My kid did, not not them. That would be I was assuming it was your kid. <laughs> you brought him in here to build a pond. Did you record it? <laughs> yeah, so, but the video is secret. I can't show anybody. Um, so uh, back to content real quick here. Um, got a couple of questions here. Uh, I'll start with this one from Natalia. She asked, um, I think you went over what inspired you to write the book. Um, but this um, is a good question here. When did you feel more inspired to write? Uh, morning, afternoon, or evening? Oh, it's definitely going to be morning for me. So I wake up at 5 a.m. I like I like working when it's still dark out. <laughs> Interestingly, I don't like working when it when the sun sets. It's like right before the sun rises. I do a lot of my work. Everyone's asleep. I have coffee. And there were definitely times when I had to push through for like a full day. So, you know, with writing a book, you can focus on each chapter but then towards the end, you sort of have to focus on the whole book. You have to make sure that all the chapters flow, like, should this chapter come first or should that one come first? So I had this whole big, like, whiteboarding session. I had, like, printouts everywhere. And for that one massive day, I sort of shut down my room. And my kids even, like, wrote motivational words on my – I think I made a post about it. Of, like, you can do it. Like, just power oh, through. Because it's a big deal to make sure that the, everything is flowing in the same way and that it's not repetitive. Um, that's one thing I really don't like about books when it's like you've said this and that you're saying it again and then next chapter you're saying it again like okay we get it um, so I wanted to make sure I remove all of that and it it took that literal entire day but mostly my inspiration hit early mornings yeah what about you guys when did you write it would depend I mean often mornings late at night weekends especially that's that's mm-hmm. how yeah, I, I think you're more of a weekend guy yeah yeah I would yeah. just go right or or sometimes on a plane like I would just write for four hours straight planes are so freaking productive it's crazy they can be yeah I don't know next. why it's on your mood and yeah how tired you are but sometimes they're great <laughs> so focused yeah. i do a lot of my research on planes um so you have an ipad and a, and a um you know apple pencil and i'll just go through uh pdfs and jot notes and stuff mm-hmm. um i think for me writing in the morning is always good i think kate and i have very similar schedules where we're just up at very up early um maniacally early hours um but it's also one of those things where i think if you have kids it's a bit of a different story because it's like those are like that's the only time you really have to yourself right <laughs> so and that's you can't get that back and so <laughs> so i've definitely forced myself to, to do it i would say with the, the the book i'm working on right now it's um i would say partially because i don't really have a set deadline i have my own internal deadline which i'm holding myself to but it's like i i'm giving myself a lot more liberty to, to focus on um I think the thinking part of it, it's, it's mm-hmm. I think it's a harder book to write than what we just wrote, but um, there's a lot more nuance to it. So I'm giving myself a lot more time to, to think and, and research and, and also write. But I, I do hold myself to writing every day, at least 500 words, because that's about a page. Um, oh, that's not bad. So, yeah, but it's still, it, it's... And so the other tips for writing, I would say, or tips because I'm sure people are asking about this because they want to write maybe, but if you didn't, unsolicited advice, like you always focus on the notion of a zero draft. So everyone talks about a first draft, but a zero draft is one of these things where if you can just kind of uh, word vomit onto a page, um, this at least gets 
the words onto a page. And the thing you got to realize about writing is um, writing is about writing, which means words need to get onto a page somehow. Yeah. Like it, it doesn't, the book doesn't really exist until it's on some sort of uh, a medium, whether that's paper or, you know, a document or something like that. It can be all in your head. You may have written it all in your head, but it, again, and it text to speech is another one, like maybe recording yeah. yourself and talking. That's another, um, another yeah. hack. Yeah. But like, it doesn't matter until it's like onto another medium that yeah. can be transcribed. And so even if the ideas suck, that's the main thing you want to get over is writer's block. And like, it's easy to um, wait for like the perfect time when you're inspired to write. I think that for that me personally, help. that's like bullshit. <laughs> Other people, if it works, do it. Um, but it, it's like, really, it's just about the output. It's really what matters. Um, this is what worked for me. I don't know. Everyone's different, though. Yeah, I think for writer's block that the best way to overcome that is to literally start writing, even if it's pure garbage, whatever it is on that topic. And as you start writing like that act, it's the same, I think, with anything in life, whatever you want to start doing, just start. And then it just sort of starts flowing in that direction. And you might cry your way through it, but you're going to get it done. Mm -hmm. um, and if that chapter is not flowing, then maybe go to another chapter and come back. But as long as you're actually putting putting stuff out there, I think. Yeah. I, I used the text to speech. It wasn't as productive for me. I was so frustrated just watching myself, like, uh, and then I would write, uh, and I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> just oh that's fun. And then it's just like blanking, waiting for me to speak. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I tried it. I'm like, no, it didn't work. What was it like? My one of my uh, my uh, old CrossFit coach. He uh, he did his PhD in Spanish literature of all things, and, and he said in his dissertation it was interesting because he he would just force himself to write one word a day. That was it. Yeah, what they told me in academia was write for 15 minutes a day. And then okay. usually once you get started, you can keep going, right? Yeah. Like have more time available. But if you can commit to doing 15 minutes a day, then you'll usually end up doing a lot more. Mm -hmm. Just gets you over that that hurdle, basically. It's a very good approach. I, I think I know people who've used that for reading like 10 minutes a day. And once you start that 10 minutes, then you're like, okay, I can do more. And it's just Yeah. Speaking of reading, you read a lot of books. I read a lot of books. Yeah. I read, I read 60 that? books last year. Uh, this year I'm slowing it down and I'm, I'm being a lot more focused for each book and really just getting more insights out of each one. Um, but yeah, a lot of most, I think 98% of that was nonfiction. So it was a lot of hmm. running a business. It was a lot of like marketing and growth and running and <clears throat> those types of uh, scaling a business and scaling a community, like just learning as much as I can. So I absolutely love reading though. So that's, that's my, that's my Netflix. <laughs> I'm the same. I have a spin bike out in this other room and I just put the iPad down and just read, um, cause it, I have a Kindle too, but it, I basically read a book while I'm like, is, uh, Oh, I like I actual books. Bike. So I, I did maybe, mm -hmm. I don't know, maybe 15 of those were audiobooks, but the rest were just, I like the, I like books. I like going out, like drive out to a lake with a nice view, oh. get a coffee, sit down with a book listen to the birds it's so nice how do you it's handle so the fun. book accumulation problem that's yeah that's the i can show like, you just... if i turn this laptop around you <laughs> okay all right now i understand yeah it yeah. looks like a scene from horrors it's just i have books. i have a very nice bookcase but it's inside a closet so like you can't see it doesn't look cluttered but then all the books are are neatly organized i had i had a period in my life where i actually read romance books joe to your point Ooh. i probably had two, three hundred of them. Like I read a lot of them. They were not the trashy kind though. They were kind of like, ooh, look, they met. And now like they bought a house together. It was just, I don't know. It okay. was a period of my life. Okay, highbrow, Joe. I think you guys should collab on this new company. Yeah, you want to do another AI, book? Maybe AI uh, romance novels. Yeah. I, I actually, when I was in that period, it was before kids, it was like 10 years ago. And I had so many books. And then um, I gave them to my brother. He has like a shoe fixing place in Manhattan. And he's like, I'll sell the books there for like a dollar each. I'm like, okay. Mm. But I, it was a problem. I had so many books. I would go through them in like a day. Um, they seem like quick reads. Forgot how we got here. Hold on. <laughs> Just your, uh, your book, book habit. Book reading. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so the last book I read, it was actually how to write useful nonfiction books. Such a good book. Like mm -hmm. I was going to write a book about business literacy and like for data professionals. And that book talked me out of it. And I'm glad it did because hmm. now I'm not writing that book. Because it asks you questions like, are you solving a problem? And that book would solve a problem. And then are you passionate about it? And I was not. So I'm like, okay, why even bother if I'm not going to be excited about writing this one? Yeah. So I'm writing another book, which I am super excited about. So it's, That's cool. Yes. Um, 
Fred Lodaros is a dedicated, rom- romanticated. Oh, uh, God. <laughs> good, good pun. Uh, what's up, Fred? How you doing? Um, y'all, y'all should meet up next time you're in New Jersey. We, we y'all should. Yeah, New yeah. Jersey crew there. Yeah, so, we'll uh, do he's, it. He's, he's a fun guy. I like Fred. Um, Christine has a question here. Um, she says, I think Colorways is a book that fills a gap in the existing literature. The ideas in the book are relevant. Um, she asks, finding a niche for your ideas can be hard. Uh, what are your suggestions on how to find an audience or cultivate interest about your content? Yeah, I think it's very, very specific for each person in, in terms of how do you actually know what to write about? And I think it, taking some time and even jotting down like, bubbles, like put your name and then write everything that's related to you and your interests. And then thinking about what it is that you actually like talking about. Like, I love teaching people about color and I actually wanted to learn more about it. So for me, that book made a lot of sense. And that was part of the reason I put that business literacy book aside. And I told them like, I don't want to write this because the other thing I want to write about is very exciting for me. So I think picking something that you are truly excited about and yeah, consider your audience. But I think it's more important that you're the one who's on board. Like I can write something that my audience will care about, but if I'm going to hate every step of that process, like, do I really want to do it? Is it worth, like you don't make that much money writing a book, by the way, guys, (laughs) if you want to, want to put that out there. I mean, I know some people do. And some I'd say most people probably don't. If you do a quick Google search, I think two, 3% of people actually make a good living um, as being authors. So it it actually becomes like a passion project versus a revenue generating project. And if you're not passionate about it, then you know, why are you doing it? I would say too, it's one of those things where it's it's about finding an audience, but it's about the audience, I think, finding you and, and getting on board with what you're about. So yeah. it's because I think, I don't know about you, but I've noticed if I try and like placate to an audience, I think I did this early on, but then I realized, okay, if I'm just, if I'm just myself and I just kind of do the things that I'm into, maybe if people are, you know, vibe with it, great. If they don't. Yeah. Is what it is. So, and that I think for me at least, it made it a lot um, mentally healthier because now I'm not trying to, um, you know, uh, placate a bunch of people. I'm just you know doing my thing, and if you like it, great. If you don't, you know, go buy my romance novel when it comes out, and we'll be a great shape. So, listen, yeah, I agree. I think it's like we're all magnets, right? And the more we post about, let's say, a specific topic, we put out content on that topic, you start like a magnet to attract those people who are interested in that topic. So your audience generally will, like I had a different audience before data. And Mm. I was I was all about risk management, regulatory Mm. compliance in financial services, like that was my world. And those were my people. And that's the content I used to share on a very limited basis, because back then LinkedIn wasn't as you know, like a content platform. But I had to do a major shift. And the more I talked about data, the more those people sort of like, mm. I don't know, they stopped following me, but they stopped engaging. And that the more data professionals started engaging with my content. So, And how did you make that shift? What motivated it? Was it just personal interest? Was it like you thought that there was a better audience for data or a better future for it? Oh, no. I actually didn't care about the audience at all. No offense, audience. But I really <laughs> didn't care. I just, I used to post for selfish reasons. Like I was uh, studying for the Tableau desktop professional whatever exam and I would post like hey can anyone help me do you guys have questions I'm taking this test and people started engaging with that and then I started building visualizations and I started posting them and people engaged with that so it was it was a lot a lot of it came out of selfish reasons where I wanted to better my visualizations asking for feedback um then it shifted into sort of my sharing what I'm learning along that journey of becoming a data professional myself and people just wanted to follow on that journey so I was never, I never intended to come out there and like, Ooh, I want followers. No, it was just, I posted and for some reason people found it interesting enough to, to connect, engage and follow. For sure. And I think if you, if you actually go the opposite route and you're trying to go, um, you know, get a bunch of followers, it, it, it never works out for people I've seen it or, yeah. you know, it, it, it's really short sighted because you're not doing it for yourself. You yeah. know, and, and you don't even know who your followers are because now it's just a now it's just a metric, right? Like I yeah. just need to get like X number of followers. It becomes obvious, right? Like what people are trying to do. Yeah, yeah. Like I get hit up quite often. I'm not sure about you, but you know, people will message like, "Hey, can you help promote my post? I'm trying to get more followers." And inevitably, I'm just like, "I don't know. I can't help you do this." Um, like you really. I had I had I had one who was actually pretty funny. So I would engage with this person's post once in a while, just because like you know people engage with each other's posts once in a while. And then uh, the individual messaged me and said, like, you know, 
it's interesting. Every time you engage with my content, like it blows up and it goes really like big, bigger than it would have if you didn't. And I'm like, okay. I mean, well, that's what I do for a living now. Right. So that's, that's great. And then she's like, well, can you just do this every time I post? Can you just like, like, what? Why? Why would I like, how do you even ask for something like that? It was so bizarre. And I'm like, do you hear yourself? Like, you want me to just like drop what I'm doing every time you post and go engage with you? That's, that's asking for a lot, man. That's, that's quite the ask. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's funny. Like there are some weird lines of, of etiquette that you have to map out in this new online world of social media. I mean, yeah. of course, in Facebook, this has been a thing for a long time. At LinkedIn, it still feels slightly new. And it's like, well, yeah, try to help each other out. But making these ridiculous demands crosses the line. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's an interesting one. It's different how, if you're friends and like you really yeah. want to post to do well and I'd be like, hey, Matt, can you just like comment real quick so it doesn't die? I get that. But yeah. we were we don't know each other at all. It was yeah. just like a random yeah. person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, then it then provides a slippery slope because inevitably that person can say, well, Kate, will, she'll boost your content. Just, you know, and then, and then all of a sudden, you know, you've done a bunch of volunteer work and... And inevitably, too, it's just disingenuous. I feel like the content really needs to stand on its own. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like it's just one of these things where if your post is good, then your post is good. You know? And that's just yeah. it. I think you have to tell people, like, look, if I find it interesting and it pops up, I'll engage. If I don't, then I probably Yeah, won't. like, so, we've, it, yeah. It, that's exactly it. And this was a while ago, maybe like two years ago. So yeah. I mean, what, do you, what are your thoughts on, um, uh, you know, companies... Um, asking for help, uh, boosting their content on LinkedIn. Uh, I know this is dedicated, obviously, uh, you know, it does a lot to help uh, brands, um, you know, and whatnot. But and walking through this, I, I, you know, I don't know about you, but I've kind of seen an evolution of, of this, uh, uh, of, you know, this, this kind of playing out over the years. I'd like your take, because it seems like you were one of the people who are sort of at it from uh, the beginning with, with data related. Yeah, it actually, that, so that started for me, again, just like my following, it started by accident where I had a show, it was called Humans of Data Science, where I interviewed mm -hmm. people for like 10, 15 minutes, like, hey, Joe, so how'd, you, how'd you get to where you are now and talk about yourself and blah, blah, blah. And uh, at some point, people started coming to me saying, hey, I'd love to be on the show. Like, I think I had a backlog of like 600 people who wanted to be on the show. And I'm like, okay, great. I pick and choose profiles that I think were interesting, like maybe like an 18-year-old girl in Yemen who's trying to break into data science like I get her on the show and then I'd get like a chief data officer of a you know big global bank and trying to mix it up so I was using that form to get good speakers and then once in a while people would say hey um how do I get my CEO or founder on on your show like we're willing to pay mm -hmm. and I'm like well this could be a business <laughs> so that's that's actually how I was able to go off on my own with dedicated is being able to um leverage the audience that I've built and help educate them on various topics. So I, I don't do things that are like, go buy this software now, right? I, I stay away from that type of content. It would always be like, okay, have you ever heard of data observability? If not, come, we'll teach you what it is. And yes, if you're interested, this is the company that's sponsoring. So you can learn more, but right. I try to do a, a good job at not telling people sort of like this tool is better than that tool unless I actually think so. And like, I always talk about Tableau. That's the tool I sort of grew up with. So when people ask, what's your favorite database tool? I still say Tableau because that's the one I know personally. So I'm not going to lie and say, oh, they're all equal. Like, no, oh, that's hey, the one yeah. I know. Like that's, that's, it is the truth. Um, but I have definitely seen an uptick in companies wanting to leverage the LinkedIn platform to reach an audience. And I think they're quickly learning that, um, commercials that look like commercials are not going to be watched or right. shows that are sales pitches are not going to be watched. And that's just human nature. Nobody wants to be sold to for 45 minutes. For sure. 45 seconds. Yeah. yeah. Everyone is looking for authenticity. And I, I've found just looking at various YouTube channels and things, frankly, one of the best things to do for companies is just to get really good tutorial videos out there that explain how to use their product. Don't even <laughs> talk about how it's the best thing ever. Just explain how to do a particular thing that might be useful to someone. Yeah, yeah. We're talking with Ken G about this yeah. last week. He's hanging out in Salt Lake right now. It's for all uh, kicking it, but talking about content that, you know, paid content that works and paid content that's kind of, um, uh, well, yeah, definitely to your point, like the advertising route, like nobody engages with that kind of stuff. But, and, and it's one of those things where I, I actually will refuse to do webinars if they're, you know, um, kind of corny sponsored things where yeah. it feels like it's an infomercial. Like I just won't, won't do it. And it's 
you know, you got to make, you got to be happy with what you're doing. And I just, that's and, right. And yeah. when was the last time that you really enjoyed that style of webinar? I remember going to those back when I had a corporate job and you sit down like, Oh, great. Like first it's a 15 minute intro why we're awesome. Hold on. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> but I, I'd like go to a Databricks one or I go to one on Anaconda and they just weren't very engaging. But then I go to YouTube about like how to do X, Y, and Z and spark. I'm like, Oh, this you is want to know how to do stuff. Yeah. yeah right? I want to know now, unless stuff, of course yeah. I have good food at like the input because back in the day of in-person, <laughs> you know, true. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there are definitely some of the vendors that would, that would throw down on some great food and people would show up. And you up. get to meet people. I used to go to those for the risk conferences. Yeah. And used to go to those risk events all the time. And that's sit through the vendor meetings at seven o'clock in the morning for the breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> it's like going to a timeshare meeting or something. Um, I haven't done those, but I know what you're talking yeah, there's a good South Park episode where uh, I think the parents take their kids skiing in Aspen and they get a good deal, but they have to go to a timeshare meeting like two hours or something. Where the kids are oh, my God. Home. I love South so Park. It's pretty funny. Yeah, I may have to check that out. It's good. It's called I'm Aspen. Familiar. I'm familiar with yeah. this experience. But it takes uh, it, it, the whole movie um, is kind of a, a play on uh, that old 80s movie, Better Off Dead. I don't know if you ever watched it, but I haven't um, anyway, it's an old 80s ski movie. It's just filmed up here at Snowbird, by the way, Matt. So, um, yeah, anyway. Uh, I digress. Um, but yeah, I was just going to say the the other, so the tutorials are great. And I think what I usually tell clients is the best way to put yourself out there, like forget dedicated yeah. is put your clients on the, sh on your show. Yeah. Talk about, have your clients just talk about their actual problems, why they chose you, what issues they faced with you and how you help them and all that good stuff. That's how you actually, I think can get business that's i think that's great and also like it's the whole selling without selling thing where uh, you actually it makes more sense to talk about if the client talks about cool stuff they're doing the data science and by the way we use snowflake or databricks to do it yeah. that's a way better pitch than just spending the entire time talking about snowflake or databricks i people want to know what cool stuff you're doing above all right like the tools you want to explain why they should actually care about the tool not not how the tool is the coolest thing well yeah. yeah and it's interesting too like one uh, a friend of mine who runs um i'd say a pretty popular um you know, data startup he he did mention too like it, it's distribution and um just getting out of the realm of obscurity is definitely the hardest thing that he's had to uh deal with it's like she said oh it's surprisingly enough if you build your product people know just automatically show up and sign up and i was like yeah it's that's how that works um, yeah. <laughs> people need to know about it and so this, this seems to be the conundrum i think a lot of um data companies are facing where it's i think there's a lot of great products out there i don't think that's the problem it's really cutting through the noise and giving people a why like why should i why should i care why should i listen to what you have to say you know um you know, why should I consider buying your product? Like that that's, you know, obscurity, I'd say, is the biggest enemy of, of a lot of the companies right now. And yeah. which sort of, you know, what, I, what I've seen recently is an uptick in just in the number of solicitations that, that I've been getting for, you know, for various companies. Um, maybe that's also because the profile has been raised, but, the, you know, it's hard to say. But at the same time, it, it's I have definitely noticed an uptick in frequency and this kind of stuff. So, yeah, yeah. To your point, I think differentiation can, can go a long way. I was putting together a list of like two, 300, I think it's now over 300 companies that are in the data analytics and now AI space. And I had a, it's in a spreadsheet. So I have a column that has the description of the company. And if you read 30 of those descriptions, almost all of them sound the same. They're like, they all are starting to blend together. So like, I, I actually wanted to play like a little game with, uh, with the data audience and like match the company description to the company. And I think people are going to have a hard time doing that. I'm using the description on the their mm -hmm. LinkedIn company page. And a lot of them don't even say like what it is they're doing, which is so bizarre. Oh, like, we're going to help you. We're going to help you do the thing. Like what's the thing? Be very clear. <laughs> what exactly? What is your value add? It's very interesting how they're trying to water it down to the point where you don't even know what exactly they're focused on. Mm -hmm. It's it's uh, yeah, like we help you get more value from your data. I think that that's one. That's all the companies, right? Like that's, yeah. that's literally that's a very common one, actually. I think when we started, we even used that because they're just like, oh yeah, yeah I mean, obviously everybody wants that. But then yeah. you, yeah. when you start understanding branding more, and you're like, absolutely, do not use that, please. Social media, yeah. yeah. yeah just what's your what's your thing now? What's your slogan? I have no idea, actually. Oh we're, no, we're yeah, yeah. <laughs> we just show up on Monday. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're we're kind of going through a, a bit of a pivot right now with the company too. So we're getting out of I would say almost consulting. Um, so that's kind of where we're going. It's education and that kind of stuff mm. is. But you know, it's it, yeah, but, yeah. So I don't. I, so I, mean, I literally can't tell you right now what the what the pitch is. Joe, Joe's writing another book, so because he's insane. But that's the main thing. I'm doing that. Matt, yeah. are you writing another book too? 
Uh, not at the moment. So ask me. And you, you guys months. should write separate books, but yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. at the same time, because it's nice to have an accountability buddy. I'm sure you guys helped each other along the way with that one book. Like, oh yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, done yet, man? <laughs> well, it's it's kind of like, uh, yeah, it's sort of like mountaineering or something, or or escaping from like a horrible uh, accident, I guess, in the middle of that. My God. <laughs> So it's like you got each other's backs, but it's a bit frustrating at the same time. So, uh, yeah, I, I would say like, you know, I, I definitely, you know, I'm having a lot of fun working on the book solo, but, you know, um, yeah, I don't know, man. What would you, what would you write about if you had to write a book? I don't quite know right like now. Billionaire so bosses to, or something? Yeah, 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 something like that. I'll, okay. I'll have to think um, about it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, it's a tough one. The subject matter is an interesting one. It, it's, um, this is why I had a hard time like figuring out where I'd want to get a job, for example, if I had to get one. Cause it's like, I don't know like what idea I would have this, you know, or a mission I would have enough staying power to believe in for like years on end, let mm. them, you know, and that's, and a book is like a compressed version of that where you're having to like hyper focus on an idea for a long time. And so you really got to choose very carefully, like what, um, you know, what do you want to commit yourself to? Sorry, we were talking about before, uh, Fred says, uh, fundamentals of mountaineering. Uh, be good yeah, that's a good one. I think it was a book. The American Alpine Club had a book like that once. It's a good, good book. Not nearing um, with your billion dollar boss, yes. <laughs> well, and in fact, they, they're, they're kind of the same things. A lot of billionaire bosses like to go mountaineering. They all like to go climb Everest now to uh, um, a little prestige project, basically. And Everest is such a trash heap right now. I would never go carry all that. their gear. Yeah. Uh, even back in the day when I when I grew up in um, Lander, Wyoming, it was interesting because I think at the time there were more people who had climbed Everest in that small town than anywhere else in the world and what oh. even back in the 90s though because there's an outdoor leadership school there so like a lot of mountaineers there but oh. i remember when i was a kid they they were already doing a um a, uh an expedition um to everest to clean up all the oxygen bottles that were there so it was just like a, like oh, a, interesting. a dump did you yeah. guys ever climb or what's up did you ever climb mount everest no 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 i would no, especially not right now it's probably too crowded <laughs> so yeah I, I keep seeing this post on facebook of like uh, a whole bunch of people climbing and it said and then like a bunch of people dying too um not oh, everest, like, and they're like they were all highly motivated people like maybe oh. calm down a bit <laughs> oh yeah that's a good post yeah, well then you combine that with good. social media right i mean this was pre-social media that people were so into it now everyone wants to be oh yeah now everyone's selfie there right <laughs> yeah Wow. <laughs> but anyway, um, well, cool. For people who want to learn more about you or color-wise, how can they do that? Um, they contact Joe. No, I'm kidding. My assistant, Joe. <laughs> Give me a call. It's fine. <laughs> um, O'Reilly, Amazon, anywhere, Barnes & Nobles. You can Google it. Yeah. When I Google it, it's so cool. It actually comes up. So That's, that's Fred. Cool. And be sure and give it a, you know, a smash the like button. Give it a five-star rating. Um, yeah, only no, if you like it though. Real, real feedback only. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. I want the good. I want the good and the bad because I want to improve for for the next book. Like, I want. What's to your next book? book? Uh, running dedicated. It's completely different than. Oh, cool. Data or color. It's about running the company and my running adventures. Like, I have a, a lot of running adventures Ooh. planned for this year, and mm. uh, some are crazier than others. Like, I'm really excited about them. Can you talk about them? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been posting. So I have this, I'm using Substack to write the book. So I'm doing a different approach where I'm not hunkering down for a year. I'm actually writing it every single day almost where I create a post on, okay, today I'm working on getting sponsors for the dedicated conference. And here's how I'm doing it, right? Like step by step. And uh, yeah, people can read it as, as it comes out. And then eventually it's going to go into the book. But cool. one of the running adventures I'm most excited about it's called uh, The Longest Day, and it's going to happen in June during the summer solstice where I'm going to run from sunset to sunset. So 24 hours uh, nonstop. I've never done that. So I'm like scared, but so excited for it. And then each month has something like that. Like next month is the 100 miles of silence where I'm going to run without AirPods, which is a big deal for me. Like <laughs> So it's like running back in like the seventies. Just me. The nineties. I mean, for me, <laughs> you kind of a Walkman, I guess, uh, or your, your, your CD. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, cool no, that's really cool though. But then it would skip. I tried rollerblading with those CDs and like every time yeah. you were rollerblading would skip because you kept bouncing. So that wouldn't work. 
<laughs> That's so. awesome. That'll be a lot of fun. Um, well, cool. Yeah, looking forward to your uh, your running adventures. Um, yeah, stoked. You have a lot of things going on, and it seems all like really cool and real positive and just uh, awesome. Yeah, it's fun. Fun stuff for sure. I'm definitely trying to have more fun this year. <laughs> cool. All right, Kate. Well, it's good to see you. Um, again, everyone out there, uh, you know, get Colorwise wherever you buy your books. Um, it's also on the O'Reilly platform. If you want to get that. Uh, next week, we have a Jeremy Stanley from Anomalo on the show. So that's going to be a good one. We're going to talk about the, I guess, the data quality, the hard parts. So that's going to be a, a fun chat. So nice. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> All right, awesome. Thank you guys Talk for having you. me here. All right. Thanks, Thanks for taking the time. This is great. Bye. Bye.